0: Okay, Luke chapter 9 is where we are. Let's go ahead and read. We're only going to look at half of the chapter, roughly half of the chapter this evening, um, which is broken up into about five different stories. So I'm going to read the first story, which is up through verse 6. It says, And and Jesus called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and, and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So Jesus here is sending out these apostles. Notice there it says in verse 1, and he called the 12. We're referring to the 12 apostles here. Now, just a few chapters back in Luke chapter 6, we read it here in Luke as well as in Matthew, and I believe it is in Mark, that after a night of prayer, Jesus took of his disciples, and he may have had 100 or more disciples. We know in in some places reference to 120 and so on. But he, he takes that larger group, and after an evening of prayer, he narrows it down there to 12 of them. And so in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, he says, uh, In those days, or in these days, he went out to the mountain and prayed, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples, and he chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, notice there it says, um, whom he called apostles. The word apostles, literally, you could translate it, a sent one. And here now, in Luke chapter 9, these 12 are being sent out. Now, all the disciples, if you will, had a mission. They all had a job. They all had a goal. Uh, just as we do. The Lord puts a calling on our lives to go forth. But these folks, they were sent out in a special way. Uh, They had authority. They had power, as you can see, uh, was listed in our particular passage. Also, Matthew 10 tells us that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to heal and to heal every disease and every affliction. So in both of those instances, there's a combination of power and authority, which was somewhat unique. To the ministry that he was sending them out to do here given to us in luke chapter 9 now when jesus gave them this authority when he gave them this power was that a one-time gift that he gave them and they had it from then on the rest of their lives or was that something that was continually being gifted to them for the scenario that was before them or the circumstance i should say that was before them and and i would suggest to you that because we see elsewhere that there were times when the disciples and uh, the apostles are in that crowd couldn't cast out demons, that I would suggest to you, it wasn't a one-time thing, but it was a re-gifting that the Lord was continually working in their lives, uh, depending on what uh, the scenario called for. And so here these guys are going out. Now let's look more closely at this passage here, starting in, again in verse 1. And to the twelve he called them together, he gave them power over all demons, to diseases, he sent them out, To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. This idea of proclaiming the kingdom of God. And you hear that phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand. You hear that phrase a lot in the Gospels. And hopefully by now we're learning how to study the scripture. We would ask ourselves, well, what is the kingdom of God? You know, we we don't want to read through it. We want to consider and think about it here. Uh, You remember when Jesus' prayer, when they said, teach us to pray like you pray. And he says, you pray our Father. I only remember it so well, because I grew up having to say it a lot, but uh, our Father which art in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this idea of, that's me, sorry, this idea of the kingdom of God, please turn off your phones, people, you know, this idea of the kingdom of God is that God's will would be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. Now, we know that that will happen here upon the earth one day. And we know that as we submit ourselves to the Lord and his direction and his leading in our lives, that his kingdom has come in our hearts, uh, and so to speak. So these guys are going forth. They're going to preach this message here uh, of the kingdom of God, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, And one of the things that we're going to see this evening is this is a very different message that's going to go forth to the average Jew. In, In the average Jew, what they were looking for was a king to come, who was gonna, you know, throw off all these mean old Roman people here, and Jesus is gonna teach a very different um, purpose for why he comes here. So when Jesus says, or when they, when he prays, you know, Your kingdom come, or they go out and preach, Your kingdom, the kingdom of God is going to come. Very different idea in the average Jew's mind of what that would mean. So anyway, are they, we'll talk so about it. Oh, okay. Well, we're gonna talk about it. Yeah, don't worry. That's gonna be a main part of the evening. Anyway, verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Now, take nothing for your journey. Why not? Why can't I take, you know, a little bag, some toiletries or, or something here? And, and I, I think they don't fit in your bag. That's why. It's you know, too heavy. I, I think the, the idea, I don't think, I, the idea is Jesus is trying to communicate to them this idea of going forth in faith of dependence on him, of watching him work. Because if we don't move forward unless we have all our ducks in a row, what's probably going to happen to us? We'll never move forward because we're never going to have everything in a row. And the apostles are going to learn that God goes before them, that God's going to provide for all of their needs. They're going to see him work, and they're going to have to trust that he's going to work. So Jesus there says, "Go." tells them to go forward in faith. And uh, don't bring all sorts of other stuff that you can depend on, we can go forward in faith because our bank account is big enough, and we know that we can go forward in faith. Well, you're not really going forward in faith in God at that time. You're going forward in faith in your bank account, and so on. And Jesus is going to show them the power and the simplicity of the Word of God, preaching this message that's confirmed by the healing. You'll see that. Anyhow, verse 4 continues. It says, And wherever whatever house you enter, stay there, and then from there depart. The idea is as long as you're in that town... Don't go looking around, finding a better place or something. That's the one that you're going to have. Stay with whomever will have you. And again, they're going to learn that God goes before them, that he's providing for their needs. These are lessons of God's provision for them. Uh, And it's because of lessons like this that they're going to be able to build um, a foundation of a life of faith, right? And so in our lives, same types of things. We see God work. We obviously we read his word, we study his word, we believe it, but sometimes it's in seeing him work in our lives we're like, you know what, now I have a testimony. Now I know it's more than just on the page and I know that this is reality. And so these guys are going to experience that, they're going to be seeing it. I think of this almost as sort of like a uh, a practicum for these guys, or a student teaching experience. Um, you know, I've been teaching a lot of things and I want you to go out there in the classroom and go do it and then come back and we'll talk about it later. Seems like that's what the Lord is trying to do here. Teach them some lessons in this way. Verse 5, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, we don't do this, uh, shaking the dust off our feet. Um, so, you know, you might look at it and you're like, you stupid people, I don't <laughs> like you. Kind of It's my as I know. But it, this isn't so much a... Um, I thought of a bad word here. This isn't so much of like... I don't like you, God doesn't like you, I want nothing to do with you mindset. The idea is, is almost like you see in the Old Testament, I'm clean. Mm-hmm. I've done what I was supposed to do, I've shared what I was supposed to share, I'm not going to worry about it, I'm not going to carry it along with me and be embittered by it here. I fulfilled my responsibility and now I, I move on. So a question you might ask yourself is, how do I respond to a person when they reject what I have to share with them. You know, I want to show kindness. Some people don't like kindness shown to them. And you show it just simply because of your faith, and they respond in a particularly harsh way to that. Or you share your faith with a person. Uh, Or you say, I'm going to pray for you, and they respond, don't give me your prayers. I don't want any of those. That's useless, or whatever it may be. And how do you respond when a person rejects you? Well, I think we see three things here. Number one is that you, you simply move on. You don't have to harbor it. You don't have to carry it with you. The second one is this idea is be confident and know that you were faithful with what you were called to do. And then another one here is and then leave the results with God. You don't have to go through it in your mind and all sorts of things and worry about it. You did what you were supposed to do. I love what Paul would later write. This idea, some plants, some water, but it's God who brings the increase. And so I would like it if people would respond to me positively and fall down and repent or something like that. You know, But I can be confident that All right, Lord, you caused me to either plant a seed or to water a seed. Uh, You're the one who will ultimately bring that increase. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting, this passage here, I went back, remember a while ago I was talking about that harmony of the Gospels that I worked on, Mm -hmm. where I put the four Gospels together. I went back and I looked at how uh, the other books of uh, the Gospels, how they told this story. And one of the things is that in the book of Matthew, here we have six verses. In the book of Matthew, there's 37 verses covering this interaction here. And so the the gist of it is what Luke shares with us, that Jesus calls them, explains a couple things to them. You know, you don't have to worry about all this other stuff. Don't bring all this stuff. And then go out and do what you have to do. But in Matthew, the conversation is a lot longer. Like I said, it's 37 verses. And in there, Jesus makes it very clear that this road that they're about to go down, you know, it's not just this one trip, but they're starting the rest of their lives, really, is not going to be an easy road. That people are going to reject them, that people are going to persecute them, that people are going to alienate them, all sorts of things that he is... And as I was reading it, the picture that came into my mind is that Jesus was sort of establishing for them the battle plan for the rest of their lives that is that they're about to go into battle they're about to go into a war and that'll be marked by persecution division and rejection mm-hmm. we get a little glimpse of that but if you're interested matthew chapter 10 verses 5 to 42 mm-hmm. goes into that in in much greater detail um, here so these guys i think they're you know one would think yeah i'm an apostle it's gonna be awesome you know, i can't wait to go forward and all this and then jesus has this heavy conversation with them And uh, no doubt that's resonating in their hearts and in their minds. Now verse 6, and they departed, and they went. And they departed, and they went. So they sat, like what Dave just prayed earlier here, You know that we would hear, we'd listen, we'd apply these things. They sat, they listened to what Jesus had to say, and then they responded in obedience. They went out, and they did it. Uh, The general idea is we can't just listen to the word. But we must do the word, and we're all familiar with the verse in James. I'm sure that we are doers of the word. Now they, so they go out. Um, let's read verse six. And they departed. They went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The very th- same things that verse two spoke that would happen. Um, but it's interesting because what's happening here is these guys are going forth. They're preaching, and accompanying that preaching is healing and sign those sorts of signs uh, that come with it now each of us we go out we preach you know we, we have outreaches in the park or whatever it may be and we don't see the healing coming as frequently as it seems like it's coming for these folks and so some questions that you would pose is is God done healing maybe God just doesn't do it that way anymore he did it back then but he doesn't do it that way now well I think our understanding of the rest of the New Testament, that's not the case. We, we do see um, in Acts and other places, we see Paul write about it and uh, teach about it. Um, so certainly God is still healing. I, I would think all of us would agree with that. Um, but why so prevalent here? One question, or one thing that we could walk away with. Well, maybe it's not as prevalent in our lives, but that doesn't mean it's not prevalent in other places in the world. So maybe we 're just bringing our cultural eyes, and we don 't see it much here in America, but boy, if you went to China, Kenya, India, wherever you would see healings, okay that could be I'll start traveling the world and and checking that out here. One thing I do know is uh, in the old or to me in these New Testament days here that God, in a special way, was blessing these apostles and gifting them to heal and these other things because he was using that to authenticate their message. And the reason why I say that pretty confidently is because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, it says, it was, "It was this is Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, it was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This idea that the word went forth And then God bore witness to that word by attesting to it with these various miracles and gifts and signs and wonders that are listed there. So Hebrews uh, indicates that these guys, God put a very special measure of his blessing. But I do believe that God still heals. And I do believe we should pray. And, you know, I, I go and I pray with people, and you guys do. You go and you pray with people, and, you know, what's our tendency? Dear God, but if you don't want to heal in this way, then would you please... Give the doctors wisdom and help us to be patient, even if you choose not to. And it's like we're giving poor God an out. you know what I mean? Like that he has some kind of loophole that he can get out of because he doesn't heal like that anymore. I think we should just pray very confidently and say, Lord, if it be your will, then do it. Today we went and prayed with Kelly Zeichner. Some of you know her. Um, she's really got an issue, a sickness issue and, and stuff. And uh, we just boldly ask that God would be gracious uh, and heal. Um, so we'll see (laughs) but God certainly can Greg just a thought you know my feeling has always been to ask but ask with a willingness to receive whatever answer you get yeah absolutely you know I I just think that's the way to do it yeah yeah a lot of times you see folks demanding of God all sorts of things and and you just think do you really know who you're talking to Mm -hmm. that's not demand of God but yes, I agree with you, Bob. But how many missionaries slash evangelists do take that charge of verse three either? When you go, take nothing for your journey. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody goes either sent or they raise missions to support or... Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I understand what you're saying about you've got to go to faith and you don't want a big bank account and that's going to be your cushion. Sure. But, you know, But I have to tell you... Culture, though. I have to tell you, though, thinking about the Simpsons, yeah, was, they were really close to this in many ways. Now, you know, they had a little bit of cash in their bank account that they could always rely on and stuff. But, you know, this, when they said, yes, God, we will go, they didn't even know where, and they knew the country. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they didn't know what they were doing. And, and it was. And there were a lot of folks that were saying to them, you're doing it all wrong. Here's the proper way to do it and everything. and I was really I really admired uh, their faith so uh, it's not the same exact thing you know they had some things but I say there's an example that's a good example we like them So we have a huge (laughs) portion that's not that way I totally reverse it he did that's what I was going to point out what did he say (laughs) he reversed it later in the book if you have a sword take it if you have a tunic take it yeah okay I got you. So is it just this specific for them? So like you said it was boot camp. Yes, yeah, I was gonna say maybe it's mm-hmm. a, practice or a, or a yeah. Because there are some people that say I'm moved by Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are. And um, I think in situations like that, when people say that sort of thing, like when Jeff and Linda were saying these things, there was such a confirmation from a lot of other people that knew them and their story and situation. Um when somebody comes, I'm living by faith, brother, you know, and you like, well, maybe you should get a one ad and go get a job, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. Like you're not even trying, kind of thing. So um sometimes you know, you know, like you can observe and see. All right, well, thank you. All right, so now that's that story. So these guys go, they preach the gospel, they heal everywhere. Now verse seven says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed. Now that's referring to all that was happening involving Jesus. Um, not so much these guys going forward. Um, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. Now that refers to John the Baptist. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, some were saying that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I have beheaded. But who's this about whom I hear such things? And so he saw to see him. Now Herod never got a chance to see Jesus until the end of Jesus' life. There's a number of Herods. Herod is a title, it's almost like a family name title um, in the Bible that we read here. This particular Herod, it calls him Herod the Tetrarch. This is a fellow who is known by the name of Herod Antipas. Um, He's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great died um, just around the turn of the calendar view. I don't know what that term is, when it went from zero to negative one to one. Um, That's Herod the Great. He's the one who had all the babies killed in Bethlehem and so on. This is his son. When Herod the Great died, his um, area of reign was divided um, amongst four of his, I I believe three of them were his sons and the fourth wasn't, I I think, if I recall correctly. Um, One of those is Herod Antipas. Uh, So he is called Herod the Tetrarch. A tetrarch literally means uh, ruler of a quarter, ruler of a quarter. And so he's one of those. Uh, And he's been hearing about Jesus. Uh, His area is basically the Galilee area. Um, Never met Jesus. Hearing about him, freaked out by him, uh, and begins wondering. He's perplexed. Begins wondering, who is this guy? Uh, Now he's got a guilty conscience. So first he's convinced that John the Baptist came back to life. Um, We learn in Matthew 14 and in Mark 6... Uh, that he had John the Baptist beheaded Um, as you can read the stories it was just a weird situation going on here and he was sort of compelled to have John the Baptist beheaded so first he thinks maybe it's John the Baptist then he thinks it's some old uh, prophet of old like Elijah or another um, and he's he's just scared about these things and he's perplexed about these things all right now we'll move on here the next story So on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned of it, they followed him and he welcomed them and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and he cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away and go into the surrounding, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We don't have more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there are about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty. And they did so, and they had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. So, first thing that we see is related to the story from verses 1 through 6. They returned. on their return, the apostles told them all that they had done. So, sometimes we use this as justification for coming back and giving sort of a mission report or a ministry report. We went out, this is the, the neat things that were occurring, the good things. And these are the things that God taught us, and so on. So I think there is a biblical um, di- precedent, at least, maybe not directive, but a precedent to, to do that, to go back and to report it. Um, but notice, they come back and they bring the report to the Lord. And, and sometimes when you read of ministry reports or you hear of ministry reports, sometimes you're wondering who the report's being directed to uh, and the, the purpose of it and the motive behind it. So, if the purpose of it and the motive behind it is to show everybody how amazing you are and how spiritual you are, then you're missing the point. You know, it'd be better off for that person to just go into a prayer closet and go through these things in their mind with the Lord here, rather than tooting their own horn. So, why do we bring the report back? What's our motive? Who are we trying to re- to impress? Are we being completely truthful? You know, in our report, there were there was a number of people too. <laughs> you know what i mean but you know you make it sound like there was a gazillion or something like that you know so who is being glorified so when you do those sort of reports be sure that it's the lord that's being honored and the lord that is being lifted up now we continue though the story so they come back they did that now notice uh the second portion of verse 10 and he took them and he withdrew apart to a town that was called Bethsaida now there was there, there was likely two different Bethsaidas. One was on the western shores of the Galilee, which was sort of in Jewish area. It was kind of a crowded area. Um, and then there was, it seems, there was another one on the eastern shores, the opposite side of the Galilee, which was more secluded. And so Jesus, it seems that's where Jesus is going. Jesus and his disciples, he's going to take them and he's going to withdraw. I think there's a valuable principle here um, for us as you know, there are times where we need to get away is there always work to do especially in ministry and things like that absolutely mm-hmm. there's always people that could hear there's always people that uh, can be touched in one way or another and healed and all this sort of stuff but Jesus here now sets this example and he takes the disciples and he withdraws with them they're going to get away they're going to rest they're going to be refreshed um, with a special time away with Jesus Sometimes we need that and so it's important uh, that we do that So I'd encourage you, if you're busy in ministry, sometimes it's easy to convince yourself there's more to do, there's more to do, there's more to do. But there are times where you just need to stop and make sure that you're in the right spot with the Lord. Notice, though, what happens, verse 11, when the crowds learned that he was going to this secluded place, they gave him a little time on his own just to be by himself. You know, They had a little bit of respect for him. It doesn't say that. It says they followed him. I think the idea is they... They ran along the coast. You know, If you look at the Sea of Galilee, if you're high enough, because there's mountains all over, you can pretty much see any boat that is out there. A little dinky boat or something. But you can pretty much see any boat that's out there. So they follow him, it seems, on the coast, and they chase him. And, you know, they, Turn the other way, Lord. You know, and they keep running the other way. Make him zigzag. So anyhow, they follow him, and then he gets to the shore, and notice what Jesus does here. You know, He doesn't freak on him. He doesn't get mad at them. He doesn't, damn, he doesn't say nice words, but make it very clear, I wanted to be alone are you're here. But it says that he welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and he cured those who had need of healing. He jumped right into ministry, and he began to serve them. So the pattern here is that Jesus welcomes them. And so a question for us is, how do we respond to the demands of ministry? And I think this is important because there are times where we think I'm off duty. I'm not. I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying anything. Or we give a person a quick, you know, good to see everybody. You know, God bless you. And then you run away or something like that. But Jesus here, He welcomes them. So when those opportunities in our lives come, maybe the unplanned opportunities, we look to Christ for strength. We look for to Christ to have the same compassion that He had, so that we are able to welcome people and get right into the ministry that is necessary to get into well verse 12 continues he says now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and they said to him now i read that and i wonder if the some of the disciples are thinking what happened to our day of rest and relaxation (laughs) you know what i can't help but thinking is a lot of time on our mission trips that we go on these short-term missions you know, we're running, we're working. I remember some of the Belize trips, we're getting up at 6 a.m., we're getting back home at 10 or whatever, and all of the time in between was filled with ministry, busy, and you're moving, and you're running, and all this, and so it's wise, you know, especially if you have a longer trip, 10-day trip or something, somewhere around that fifth or sixth day, just work in a morning, an afternoon of rest, you know, so you go out, so we're going to go swimming in the blue hole or in the ocean or something like that. Just work that in there. And then all of a sudden, it's your day of rest. Everybody knows Wednesday we're going to the split and we're going to swim in the ocean. And then you get there and it's ministry all afternoon. You know, And you got all these kids. And you're like, right, get, get, I'm supposed to be off here. And I, I wonder if the disciples come and they there's a thinking of what happened to our day of rest and relaxation? And if perhaps there's a little bit of frustration or bitterness. Either way, they say this. Notice it says, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions. Because we're in a desolate place. That's the idea of Tupet. Say it is here they are, they're in this desolate place. People aren't going to have food, they're not going to have a place to sleep and all these things, so this is a somewhat compassionate thing on the part of the disciples the apostles, is that they're thinking ahead here, send the people away, you know, we want to make sure it's going to be a miserable evening for everybody if we don't, so they come to send the crowd away, but a question for us is why and circumstances are telling them that there is a need that's arising that they can't meet and so they say, all right. the logical conclusion is to get it, get rid of it, that the need isn't here any more. If Jesus, most of you know the story, feeding of the 5,000. If Jesus sends the crowds away, then these disciples are going to miss perhaps one of the most, I mean all miracles, but one of the most amazing miracles that we have. This miracle is recorded in each of the Gospels. That's very few stories, I think, besides the crucifixion and all that stuff. Uh, but very few stories are recorded in all four of the Gospels. This is one of those. And they would have missed it had they sent the crowds away. It would have just been another normal day. And, you know, long, large numbers of people making their way down the hill, heading back to where they have to go, and then the disciples going off in a different direction. And So as I was reading this recently, actually I shared with, with some of the leadership team, I was wondering how many miracles do we miss... Because we deemed that it was something that was too big for Jesus to accomplish. And so we don't even go to the Lord with, you know what, Lord, there's 5,000 people here. That's men, 5,000 men. There's probably 15,000 people that are sitting here. There's not enough food for them. Could you do one of those cool miracle things that you do? Could you just show them that God can provide, you know? but they don't even come to the Lord with that. Instead, they say, send everybody away. How many miracles do we miss because we deemed it was something too big for Jesus? How many miracles do we miss because we don't even think of bringing it to Jesus? How many things in my normal day do I go through and I don't even think that this is something to consult the Lord about or to bring to the Lord? And I just work it out in my own natural wisdom or I just move on and not even do anything about it. How many miracles do we miss because we're too practical? So, some good questions here, I think, for us to consider, because we don't want to miss what God wants to do. And sometimes I think we can, if we don't bring these things to Jesus. So, Jesus now sort of redirects their thinking. And so he says, But he said to them, verse 13, You give them something to eat. Alright, so his, his point here almost is, coming off of 9 verses 1 through 6, is you probably saw me work in that way there. You know, sometimes we're much more spirit-filled, spiritual people in a foreign country on a mission field than we are in our daily life. It's something that I've come to discover in my own life. I'm much more dependent on God when I'm on some foreign mission field than when I'm here at home. And I don't know why that is. but So the Lord says, though, you give them something to eat. I think I know why it is. Because I'm pretty good at my life. I live it every day. You know what I mean? And I just get in my routine, and I can solve my own problems. And these things. So he said, you give them something to eat. Matthew actually adds the words, you don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat, he says. Well, the funny thing is that he doesn't say, I'll give them something to eat. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's human. because you put it back on them. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you <coughs> <coughs> mm-hmm. And right before that, you raised a girl from the dead.
1: Yeah, and that's right.
0: Like you just saw me raise a kid from the dead, and you think this is a problem? Yeah. So, I mean, they forgot. You know, we all forget. That's right, we do. Now, John 6 tells us that a little boy, it's his lunch. That's five loaves and two fish. Seems like a big lunch for a person, but uh, anyway, that it's his lunch, um, and Jesus says, "Bring, bring them here to me. These things, bring, bring them here to me." Um, I think there's a there's a picture here for us, and that is that Jesus reveals to the disciples what he can accomplish, um, that he can use the smallest of resources or the littlest of resources and accomplish amazing things when we give them. And when we work that in... He's not asking for my lunch, typically. But sometimes he's asking for a financial resource. And I don't have a ton. But, you know, I, uh, Lord, I just want to give it. I want you to use it and bless it. And he does. And he can use the smallest of resources. But when we think about our own lives, you know, what do I have to offer? What do I have that I can bring to change the world? Not a lot, really. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm some brilliant guy that studied all sorts of things and I know how to change a world or something here. But I'm willing... You know, so I bring my willing heart or I'm familiar with how to do this or do that and so I bring that to the Lord and you give it to the Lord and see what the Lord can do. That the Lord can do great things with our gifts, our talents to touch the lives of other people. So this kid, five loaves and two fish. I remember one thing that uh, my pastor Joe first used to always say was that mom that packed that kid a lunch had no idea what sort of an impact that that would have. Um, so anyhow... Billy, take your lunch. And Billy did. (laughs) Verse 14, it says, For there were about 5,000 men. Again, I pointed out, it only mentions men here. Um, Likely, each of them had a a wife, and they had five kids running around, so there's 100,000 people here. Uh, It's probably not that, but you can imagine the number, 12,000, 15,000 people perhaps that have gathered here. Jesus then, verse 16, it says, He took the loaves, the fish, He looked up to heaven, and He said a blessing over them. Um, we say a blessing over our food. I read a book when I was first becoming a Christian that said something to the effect of Satan wants to bring us down, and so he will even use things like poisoning our food. And so, if you don't pray over every meal, you could get a sickness and this thing. So I was praying for my meals, and, <laughs> and I remember a friend, a friend got food poisoning. Oh, no. A friend from church got food poisoning and i think he was an elder of the church or something or another so and i remember my wife and i we were boyfriend and girlfriend and others we were like well didn't he pray over his meal you know this idea we don't when we say a blessing over our meal we're giving thanks for our meal that the lord has provided and sometimes you know cookies or whatever we pray for a miracle that it won't you know go right to our stomach or something like that but the idea is we give thanks and so jesus gives thanks for the food uh, then verse 17, it goes on. It says, And they all ate, and they were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up twelve baskets of broken broken pieces. Now, you might think that everyone there just took a little nibble. I don't want to be selfish or something like that. And just took a little nibble, and I'll get more when I get home. The word satisfied, though, is a very interesting word. Roughly, it means stuffed. This is the word we use after Thanksgiving meal. You know, So these guys... On that five loaves and two fishes that the Lord multiplied, they couldn't eat another bite. And then another interesting point is it says that 12 baskets were left over. There was a basket that was left over for each one of these apostles. (coughs) And we see that the Lord is faithful. How many of the apostles were hungry? And there they said, Lord, we wanted to keep the five loaves and two fishes for ourselves you know, and sneak some bites off of that. But they gave it to the Lord, and the Lord turned around and he blessed them so that each one of them got their own basket here. The Lord provides for his servants as we give unto him. Uh, he takes care of us, and so on. There is a picture, I think, of the feeding of the five loaves, and, uh, or the 5,000, I should say. There's a picture here of this idea of that there is a hungry wor- world that is in need, and Jesus says, you feed them. And so here we are, send them away. You know, We see the world that is in need, and we send them away instead of bringing them the bread of life, instead of bringing them the message of the gospel found in the word of God. Um, here, the lesson is, look, we have scant, re- scant resources, but we give them to the Lord. And the Lord turns around and he blesses. And it is so exciting to see God bless his word as we give to him our meager acts of uh, worship, how the Lord blesses that and uses that and changes people as a result of that. Um, so, the feeding of the five thousand. Now, verse 18, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. We just saw that with Herod. But others say, Elijah. And others still, the prophet. one of the prophets of old has risen. And then Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God, he says. Now, in our story, this is five minutes later. Um, however, as you put all the Gospels together here, one of the things that we see is that this doesn't immediately follow the event that we just read. Um, in Matthew, there's two chapters in between. Uh, in John, there's, some, there's something like six chapters or so in between, some, long, some bigger number like that. Um, so this isn't immediately following. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Mark 8 tells us that this story that takes place here takes place in a called in a place that is called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is sort of like the Poconos. Uh, it's like a two-hour drive today. It was probably a, uh, it was a hike, I'm sure, for those guys. I don't know how many days it took to get there. I think when we were there uh, in Israel, they mentioned that it would take like three weeks to slowly make your way there. Um, a lot of hills, a lot of mountains and stuff like that. So now they are on that retreat that they were trying to get previously. And Jesus poses, he's praying, uh, the disciples are with him, they're going to sneak up. And uh, so Jesus now asks them a question. And as he always does, why does Jesus ask? Doesn't Jesus know? You know yes, he knows here, um, but he asks because he wants them to wrestle with the question. Uh, you know, You might look at this as Jesus being insecure. You know, does everybody like me out there you know, are they saying good things about me I hope none of that Jesus is trying to get them to consider this question because they've been following them they've been seeing things they've been privileged to some stuff that nobody else was privileged to so they're out there they're looking they're, they're wondering and so he says well who do people say that I am and they begin to answer John the Baptist some say well that's pretty good John the Baptist is a remarkable fellow he said of John Jesus said of John no greater prophet uh, and so on. Others say Elijah. You know, I think if you if you rank like Old Testament people, um, he's probably up there. Top five, if not number, number one. Yeah. Huh? Moses number one. You would put Moses number one? I think so, too. We can have, this could be fun. We'll have a debate about this <laughs> here. You know, but Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, that is a guy. Anyway, he's up there, right? One or two more... Not one apparently, but two, three or so. So he's up there. Um, one of the other prophets here. Okay, so that that's good company, but that's not what Jesus was interested in. He he wasn't interested in being uh, seen as someone you know amongst others. Um, he wasn't a long line of prophets, uh, in a long line of prophets here, um, but he's altogether above that. And Jesus makes that very clear in the gospel. So I wrote down a couple of places. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said that I and the Father are one. Well, Moses never said anything like that. John the Baptist never. Elijah, Jeremiah, none of those guys. John 14:6, Jesus says, No one can come to the Father unless he goes through me. None of the prophets ever said anything to that nature. John 14:9, You've seen me, then you've seen the Father. So Jesus was making it very clear that he wished to be seen as different from a long list of respected uh, prophets and things like that. Um, also, as we'll see, both John and Elijah, they were sort of, if you will, national reformers. And what I mean is they they took on the leadership and they spoke against corrupt rulers and things like that. Um, so... That's what people thought the Messiah was going to be, a guy that would overthrow those corrupt rulers. And so maybe that's why people think, well, maybe he's like a John the Baptist. Maybe he's like Elijah to come back. Or maybe he's the Messiah who's going to throw it all over and take over. And Jesus is going to inform the the apostles that he didn't come to overthrow a corrupt government, but he came for something altogether different, to deal with people's corrupt hearts. And so notice what he says here, the next verse, verse 20. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And, and I think he did it very well. He took the time and he looked at each of them when he said, so who do you guys say that I am? Some are saying this, some are saying that. You know, and some people, when they're posed with the question of what to do with Jesus, will hide behind, if you will, what everybody else says about him. And I think in those instances, if you're sharing your faith, well, I think he was a good man. Lots of people say he was a good man, a good prophet, or this or that. A good technique, but a good thing to do at that time is, yeah, lots of people say all sorts of things, but what do you say about him? And so Jesus answers that question here, because we can't hide behind everyone else's opinion. Everyone must make a determination for themselves as to who this Jesus is. And Peter oftentimes becomes a spokesman. We usually criticize him for this. Um, I suspect there was ample wait time and nobody chimed up, and so he does. And he says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Now, again, remember, in Jewish thinking, first century Jewish thinking, that meant something very different than what you and I would think when we say Jesus Christ. We, We know that means cross is associated with that. But for first-century Jews, that meant overthrowing the government, installing God's reign here upon the earth. And so, how much does Jesus, or excuse me, does Peter and the others understand the significance of that statement? Uh, I don't know if we we fully understand it. I do think they're thinking, coming to an understanding. This picture looks quite a bit different, but at some point in the end, he's going to be on the throne. Remember James and John's mom come and say, "Hey, when you." When you come into your kingdom, can my kids be on your right and on your left? And these things. There was always that, that thinking that was there. So Jesus is going to deal with that here. Notice what he says in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Tell what? That he is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, why wouldn't he want in that their mission to tell them that they're the Christ? And I, I think the answer is this. Again, that the average opinion of the Christ or the anointed one in the first century is that he was going to rule and reign. So for the average Jew, they misunderstood why Jesus had come, Um, and that if too many knew who he was, then he would be pressed into some role that wasn't what he came for in the first place. And so I think that's the reason why here and in other places he he tells the people, the mom and dad whose kid he raised, don't tell anybody, hey, you're not going to tell anybody. Everybody knew that they were coming to the funeral. Or whatever, but Because Jesus didn't want to do those things. That wasn't the main reason why he came. The reason for his coming wasn't to be lifted up on some throne somewhere, but it was to be lifted up on a cross somewhere. And he wasn't interested in anything that would hinder that mission. So he says, don't tell anybody. Now, it goes on, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Now could you possibly imagine what the disciples thought when they heard that? That is totally different from anything that they expected. And Jesus is making it very clear here that he was going to be a different kind of Messiah. That the priests, the elders, all these people wouldn't accept him. That he would die. And then he makes it very, very clear and that he would be raised again. Now, we know later on in the New Testament that they're like, oh yeah, third day. He talked about that. But it didn't click for them at this time here. But he clear he makes it very, very clear that he was going to be a different kind of Messiah. And then notice what he says here. We'll end with this little section. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let he let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, Jesus just talked about the fact that he was going to be killed and now he talks about the Roman method of execution and that's the the cross. We read those verses, we put them up in our kitchen somewhere if anyone comes out to me, let him deny himself and you know, we wear crosses, we put them on the sides of our church buildings and, unless you're out of Calvary Chapel and for whatever reason they're not there if we don't have a building, maybe that's why. Uh, we'll put one up in our new building when we get a building. We'll put one up there. Um, but you know, for us, it's very romantic. It's very nice. It's uh, it's got all these positive feelings here. But for these guys, when they heard a cross, they associated that with immediate death, and they understood that this was a death sentence. You know, so for us, the firing squad or the the noose or uh, the gas chamber or something like that. So he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. And follow me. Now you can't die on a cross daily, in a real cross. So obviously Jesus is talking about this idea of the spiritual sense of dying to yourself daily, and that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means that we deny ourselves, that we take up a cross again across the device of death, and following Jesus means death to self, yes, to Lord, if you will. The cross isn't about self-promotion, it's not about self-affirmation. We take up our cross, and it's a one-way trip. One person I read said that there's no going back. No safety net. We've died, and we move on. And notice he says, we die daily, um, he goes on to say. And then we follow him. He goes on, he says, whoever loses his life for my sake, uh, whoever, excuse me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life For my sake, will save it. I've come to discover, and I'm coming to discover, I guess I would say, is that true life is found as we surrender our lives to Him. That it's in the surrendering process where my body really wants this, or my soul, if you will, really wants this. i got to have this. And as we continually make decisions to say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to follow you instead. In doing that, that we find real life. That's where we discover what we have been created for, to be in relationship with God. That it's in doing that that we begin to experience the joy of a relationship with God, the peace that comes from a relationship with God, and the fulfillment that I think all of us are hungering for and desiring. Now, sometimes we look, though, and we say, but if I don't look out for myself, nobody else will. I'm the only one who really cares about myself and if I don't look out for myself and I don't look out for number one Then I'll just become a doormat somewhere And the reality is that Jesus is saying here is that we will discover a life That is far better as we surrender our life to him than anything that we could ever Hold on to and possess uh, By being selfishly trying to preserve or create some life for ourselves that there's a far better life as we surrender it over to him. Mm-hmm. And I, I read one, and I really like this. This is uh, what one guy said. He said, you can't find resurrection life until you have first experienced a crucified life. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality. Mm-hmm. We want to walk in the power of God. We want to, all the joy that is associated with Sunday morning. Well, Friday has to take place first. Mm-hmm. There has to be a crucifixion first. Mm-hmm. Dave's going to play a song about that, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Verse 25 says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits our soul, or his soul? And and again, I think the point is we live for that which is eternal. You know, and most of the little toys that are around us, we could have them if we devoted ourselves to them and went hard enough after them and did whatever it took to get them. We could probably have them. But the reality is, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world but loses it, forfeits his soul for it here? Heavy words for his disciples. Verse 26, he says, which is us, by the way, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You know, there was one fellow that was sitting amongst them, Judas who, if you will, was ashamed of the words that Jesus was speaking here. Because Judas wasn't interested in denying himself. When Jesus had that money bag and nobody around. And you know, I could take a little bit of extra out of that money bag and nobody'll know and I, I could be comfortable as a result. That was more important for him. He was ashamed of the words of Jesus and he forfeited his soul for that which was temporary. What does the profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The apostles here, they've just been let in on the true mission of Christ. That following Christ, serving him, would be marked by difficulty, that it would be marked by rejection, that it would be marked by persecution. All of those things would challenge and do challenge any one of us to follow. Now, and again, we live in a culture where, for the most part, most people just leave us alone. You know what I mean? They say stuff about us when we're not there, our families or whatever, if they don't know the Lord. But from the, for the most part, our Christianity is relatively easy. You know, We're not afraid someone's going to break in here or anything like that. We're not uh, fearful of our life or, or something like that. Uh, but these guys would know specifically what it meant uh, to be killed for their faith. And Paul, or, uh, Jesus here, he's saying that following him would be marked by that risk. And honestly, that would challenge any one of us to run away. And so Jesus makes this statement here. If you're ashamed of me and my words, and so on, you read the passage. Now verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now we're not going to look at it, actually, we're not going to look at it for a couple of weeks here. But if you look down just to verse 28, um, and, and by the way, in, uh, in the book of Matthew, for verse 27, it adds, and the Son of Man coming in his glory, or in his kingdom. Uh, and some of these folks are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, all of those guys died. You know? So they all, they're all died here. Well, what happened? Uh, I think the fulfillment of that verse 27 is what we're going to see in the transfiguration as the Lord, I think of Superman, as he sort of like just <laughs> exposed his glory um, a little bit there to uh, his, those three that he brings with them. So we'll talk about that uh, when we come back to that. But anyway, this is uh, verses 1 to 27, the hard call. Uh, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. I'd encourage you. I suspect each of us in this room, at some point in our lives, we did take up our cross. But Jesus says, take up your cross daily. That He continually will put His finger on an area of our lives. Sometimes it takes a year to go through a process and He deals with something. Sometimes it's less than that. But He'll continually put an area. His uh, finger on an area of our lives where He says, I want this area to glorify Me. And we have to take up our cross and follow Him in that area. Deny ourself. Again, remembering the truth. That anyone that uh, does that finds true life. That that's what we were created for. That's where we find the peace and the fulfillment. Amen. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You so very much for these realities, Lord. Lord, You know us and our tendency in nature and father we all confess and agree that uh, there are times that the trinkets of this world are awfully alluring and lord we want to run after them and go after them and father we thank you for this reminder that to be a follower of christ is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross uh, and to follow after you and so lord uh, we pray when faced with that next uh, temptation that'll come our way but we pray that as you reveal areas of our, our hearts and our character and our nature that uh, aren't in a right place with you, Lord, that we would be quick to respond, we'd submit, we'd give it over to you, that you might be glorified, and we would be more like you. So Lord, we, uh, we believe in the true mission of why you came. Lord, we ask that you would birth the kingdom of God within our hearts. And then we pray that our lives were glorified.